Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Drivers Meeting Podcast, hosted by RJ Starcevic and driver and team owner in the NASCAR Xfinity Series, Tommy Joe Martins. And welcome back to the Drivers Meeting Podcast and Happy New Year. It is now 2021 and we kick it off with episode number 10. And we might as well get right to it. We have a very special guest with us today, Mr. Alan Bestwick. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy New Year. Glad to be here. So, you know, we have you here and everybody in NASCAR, I mean, in, in sports in general, they, they all know who you are and they know your voice. And I know we were just talking about it, but Recently, you know, you're you're facing the same circumstances as everybody with COVID and rescheduling and what you do with uh, SNY. So, I mean, kind of run us through that. What what's it been like over this past year and right now, as you were saying, running through your text messages that you were getting about, uh, you know, rescheduling all these events like that. Yeah, it's uh, you know, 2020 was um, was kind of lousy for a lot of people. Uh, I didn't do a single thing on television between the middle of March and the end of August. Um, all of the events that I was scheduled to work on or normally work on were canceled, paused, set aside, um, whatever it was. So from the time I was at a college basketball tournament that was canceled and told to go home uh, until I went to the U.S. Open in late August, um, it was pretty much locked down, dried up, um, not much happening. Now we go through the fall. Um, I mean, you know, we've all seen what college football season has been like. Um, you know, you don't know from one day to the next what game's on, what game's off. Uh, college basketball, no different. Uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I do broadcast for the UConn women's basketball team uh, for SNY, which is the New York Mets uh, network out of New York City. And, you know, before we even got to our first game, they had a two-week pause um, then we've been on kind of a, a big roll going through December and now trying to get started after Christmas has been a little bit halting. So, you know, 2020 can go away, but I, I don't think 2021 is going to get much better for a little while. Yeah, it's going to, it's going to be a while for everything to get better. But I know during that time, you said how you had not really, you know, been in the booth for anything from like March to August. I know you over that time, uh, us, you know, in the NASCAR world, they did all that eye racing and all that stuff. And we were able to do that. Was there, was there anything like that, that you kind of did any, any esports or online, you know, commentating to kind of keep yourself active or was there anything like that? I jumped in on a couple of, uh, of, um, uh, what, what do you even call them? Uh, online races, um, <laughs> with, with, with friends, uh, yeah. four friends, you know, Landon Castle reached out to me about this thing he was throwing together with a bunch of, of, uh, people on a, a Sunday night and I jumped in on that and uh, had some fun. And I did uh, for Ford Martin, 
had a his a Monday Night Racing League their championship race uh, jumped in on that. Uh, just 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 fun, you know. Not something that I'm prepared to do regularly uh, by any means, both because of of time and technical considerations. Um, I don't have one of those big rigs sitting in the corner room. I got a Peloton, but I don't have one of those big eye racing rigs sitting in the corner room. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was fun. You know, uh, I've got tons and tons of friends in racing, uh, developed over many, many years. And we, uh, we, we still keep in close touch with, uh, with a lot of them. And, uh, and I'm around the racetrack, maybe a little more than some people know. Um, cause, cause I, I kind of, when I go, I keep a little bit of a low profile, but, um, it's, uh, it, Racing was one of the, the few bright spots in, in the sports world over the summer and certainly through the fall and, and uh, all congratulations to it. Yeah. yeah well, we made, we made it happen one way or the other. That was, the, yeah. that was, that was part of the thing was we all kind of sat around as an industry, Alan, as I'm sure you know, with all the people that you know, there was really kind of a crossroads moment because there was a little bit of a separation from well, this is dangerous, but also how many people were about to be out of work with, the racing world and kind of how so many of the teams, including mine, it's a little bit of a smaller team kind of rely on the prize money week in and week out as kind of the base level of the income. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, every aspect of the industry depends on one thing, conducting events, right? Racetrack doesn't do anything if it's not conducting some sort of event, a race team doesn't accomplish anything, but have a very expensive warehouse full of, stuff if it's not out racing um you know the tv the tv networks contracts are worthless unless they're televising events so the the ecosphere if you will of the entire industry is driven by going racing and needed to find a way to get it done i think um i think nascar did a tremendous job tremendous of dealing with um, not just the things that you see on the surface, but when you start getting into things like local health departments and the differences in protocols from state to state and in some places county to county and the amount of work that it took to coordinate all of that and get the green light from somebody to have an event, even without spectators, was tremendous. And they did a great job of it and I think saw the payoff for it. And some of those decisions were literally weeks before an event happened. And I understand just like you do, Alan, just how many people are actually there at a racetrack to make these events go and to not even have a green light on whether or not it's going to happen or not until two weeks prior to an event happening. Like I thought about Las Vegas and it was whether that was going to have fans or no fans and all of the infrastructure that you got to have to have in place to have people there at a racetrack and you don't know if you're going to even have them until the governor makes a decision two weeks prior to a race. And then coming back to the logistics of your race team, for example, yeah. oh, you're going to, you're going to load up a, a, a hauler and send it to Las Vegas. That's probably what? $3,000 in fuel. Yeah. A couple of drivers and what race ends up being on either side of it. And how does that affect our inventory and our ability to go successfully racing? And you know, in, in the case of a lot of these things, yep. Okay. We got to go ahead to plan to have a race on this day, but all right, we might have to shift it someplace else. And the ability to, to make those pivots, to make those turns. I mean, you know, look, turning is something racers do well, 
but the ability to make those turns um, with that big tent of people, I thought was remarkable. I thought it said something. Yeah, I thought it said the most about it said the most about the, the, the simple statement that racers want to race. Look, just tell us what we need to do. We'll do it. Yeah. We just want to race. And you know, Alan, you've been covering this sport for so long and been involved with it for so long now. Is this the most changes you've ever seen in a year? Because RJ and I were talking about that last week on the podcast. I think this is the most NASCAR has ever changed. I'm talking about procedurally, um, flexibility with schedule at the racetrack, no practice. You got a new car on the way, uh, changes to points and everything else that we've done. Is this the most that NASCAR has ever changed in like a two-year period? Probably. Um, the, the, the oil crisis of the early, mid-1970s, NASCAR had to do a lot of things differently. Um, but I don't think the volume of them even puts a scratch in the surface of the, the volume of changes that had to be done this year. And you know what? Good on them. Why not take the opportunity? What, what, you know, cliche again, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. Okay. We've got some needs here. We have to address. How can we address them? Well, let's try some things. You know what, what, what we found out is we don't need hours and hours and hours and hours of practice to have a pretty good race. Um, we don't necessarily need race teams to have the ability to bring 30 people to the racetrack on a weekend to have a pretty good race. Uh, we found out that our, our drivers, our teams, our cars are pretty darn adaptable when they need to. And so all these things in the past that, well, you can't do that because no excuse anymore. No excuse. You can do anything within reason because we just showed you we could. And is that an argument that you had had with, and you don't have to name names here, Alan, but I'm sure, obviously, you see the big picture here and you go, well, why don't we try this? And I'm sure you got that same pushback that we always got of like, well, you know, I don't think we really need three sessions of practice here at Iowa this weekend. NASCAR goes, oh, well, yeah, we do. It's for TV and there's all this other stuff. Now, look, I understand there's factors that I'm not seeing, but I feel like you actually have a pretty good perspective of all of this with the people that you know in the industry this was like the pushback for a long time was coming from NASCAR directly. Like, well, we can't do that. Too many people are going to be affected. And then we do it and everybody goes, well, that actually worked pretty good. Well, you know, people's needs change in a hurry. Um, <laughs> if you, if you look back to uh, five years ago, you know, anything you put on television that was moving on the racetrack drew a pretty good rating. I don't think there's anything more boring than single car qualifying anywhere ever. I don't think there's anything more boring to watch, but it drew a pretty good rating. And some years ago used to sell a pretty good number of tickets. And so for the promoter, having that full day of practice on Friday and qualifying was a day to generate revenue yeah. for television. It was, programming that drew a decent rating. And that programming was reasonably cheap because you already had the cameras and crew there for Sunday, the big payday. So it didn't cost a lot additionally to generate that extra day of programming. 
very valid reasons. Okay, some of those reasons have changed over the years. Right? Qualifying doesn't draw the live audience paying tickets that it used to. And it maybe doesn't draw on television what it used to. Okay, so now this opportunity comes along. We need to change some things right now. You, you don't get the same pushback from some of those other, other sections of the triangle, you know? I mean, you, you know, you know that there are drivers and crew chiefs who will scream at the top of their lungs that they need practice to optimize their race car to go racing. Otherwise, the teams with all the engineers and the simulations win the day. That's valid to a certain extent. But what we found this year is still a pretty good race. The racing didn't look any different because there wasn't practice. Did it? Not a speck different because there was no practice. Okay, what's the cost savings? And now we begin to generate an, another whole side of the conversation at a point in time where the sport is, which is we need to make some changes. We need to do some things differently for everybody. For sure. And, and a few months, a few weeks ago, actually, we had Jamie Little on the podcast and she kind of ran us through what it was like for, you know, her as a reporter, you know, through this whole time of change and everything and the different procedural things that she had to do. And of course, you can probably give us some insight here. How do you think as from a lead commentator's perspective, when you're up there in the booth or like this year, a lot of we're back, you know, whether it was the Fox studio or the NBC studio, you know, calling races, looking at a monitor. How do you think, what, what stood out to you the most, maybe as, you know, as a commentator up there in the booth, you know, what really changed this year procedural wise? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple things there. First of all, um, you have to be at a certain point in your relationships with the garage where you can pull that off. The, the cell phone, you know, uh, the cell phone uh, contacts book has to be pretty good to pull that off. Um, if you're, a, uh, frankly, a new guy just starting out, it's going to be hard to get that up to speed that quickly. But that's not the case with NASCAR broadcasting, right? Everybody that's doing it has been doing it for a while. So you could pull that off. I always got a lot out of my Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning walks through the garage area. That's the information you, you, you filed away to understand what you were about to see and be able to bring it to people. You lost that, but you had to get it in other ways. You had to work that, work that phone, wear the thumbs up. Um, when I'm calling a race, nothing is more important than what's on the box in front of you, what's on the monitor. If people at home can't see what you're talking about, that's not good. Now, there's lots of cameras and really great directors and camera operators and so on that capture a lot of that. Um, so what you're getting on the screen is a lot of content all by itself anymore versus the days when we used to do it with five cameras around a mile and a half track. I used to, you know, there, there are things that you look off over the top of the monitor at the racetrack to find out. Okay, so you don't have that. Adapt. It's just like, just like the racers not having practice. For the broadcasters, this is what we got to do. Make the best of it. And I'm pretty sure there would be very few people at home 
that don't work in the business that would have ever noticed anything that might have been might have been different if they were live at the racetrack. Now that said, editorial here, I wouldn't want to do it that way every week going forward. I, I feel it's really important to be at the racetrack, to be at the arena, to be at the stadium, um, to have that face-to-face -face contact with, uh, with the people. Well, and that's the other thing. You couldn't have that face-to-face -face contact with them, you know, this season anyway. You couldn't get in the garage. You had to be away. Just come to the racetrack and go straight to the booth. Well, okay. So, you know, um, under the circumstances, I thought they did a great job, both networks. Great job. Um, wouldn't want to do it that way permanently if it were my choice. See, but I, I noticed like a little bit of like a, uh, is that the way we're heading though? Where now that becomes oh, listen. more of the norm versus like, okay, look, we know Daytona 500, we're sending you there. Coke 600, okay, you're probably in North Carolina. We're going to send you there. We're going to pick the big ones, but this is how we're going to do it for the first race at Vegas, so to say. Look, look you're already seeing it, right? You're seeing it with the truck series, uh, the IMSA series you're seeing it. The biggest problem auto racing has from a television perspective is it's incredibly costly to produce, right? Think about, think about a football field. Okay. How many football field, the, if, if you took the, the running track that's around the football field at your local high school, that's one quarter of a mile. One quarter of a mile. Now we're going to go to Daytona or Indianapolis or Pocono. Two and a half miles. That's a lot of real estate to cover. It's a lot of real estate to lay cables. It's a lot more cameras. When we did the last Indy 500, we did, we had 100 cameras, 106 cameras. And each one of those cameras has a microphone attached to it. And there are replay machines that it feeds into. And somebody's got to set it up. And somebody's got to operate it. And somebody's got to tear it down. And all the connections that go between Right. Auto racing is violently expensive to produce for television. Something's got to change. It, it, you have to find a less costly way to produce it. And so there will be lessons learned from this year that will be taken and applied and will become the way of doing business. Does it mean uh, the booth announcers are never at the racetrack anymore? No. I don't think that I don't believe that'll be the case. Does it mean that fleet of production trucks that was there with 150 people every weekend gets smaller and some of those people work from elsewhere? Absolutely. It does. You know, I know I know on the Fox side of things this year, there were some some replay operators that were operating from their house. Yeah. Technology exists. You know, um, the fact that that NBC did all of their production at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Well, why they base it there? Because a lot of the people that work in NASCAR and NASCAR television live in the Charlotte area. You just eliminated hotel rooms. You just eliminated airplane tickets. You just cut the cost of taking the show on the road significantly. Do I expect those kinds of things to stick? Without question, they have to. And, and I look at kind of how the schedule can also reflect that, Alan, because there, there was the pitch this year, and I know because I participated in it a few times, of doubleheader races. And that's something that's happening at Pocono. Mm -hmm. And we look at the NASCAR schedule and everybody goes, ah, this is too long. Like all of us in the industry go, 
Yeah, probably too long. We understand why it's long. It's we're an event based sport, just like you said. Tracks want multiple events. That's multiple times they can sell tickets. But is that not just kind of the easy thing that's laying up there where we go, well, this cuts costs for all of our teams, gives better value to the fans. And now on the production side, I'm able to produce two races in one weekend or three races or four races or whatever it is. And only got to move my stuff once. There, there is some validity to that. The track operator can turn around and argue that the economic impact it has on its community uh, is bigger bringing the show to town twice versus once. Can the track operator sell you a ticket to both Saturday and Sunday for the same price? Are you going to buy both those tickets or are you really only able to, you know, you're just going to buy the one? Because as we know, the vast majority of tickets sold in a race weekend are for Sunday. Fewer for Saturday, fewer for Friday. What's the break point where it's no longer viable to maintain a racetrack as a racetrack? What's the break point on paying, you know, every, every racer's argument is we need a bigger purse. We need more prize money. We need, right? What's the break point at which the promoter can afford to do that? Can a promoter afford to pay a cup purse on both Saturday and Sunday and pay these other purses? What, what kind of revenue is going to come in? So it, it's, it's a delicate negotiation, always has been, because the three sides of the triangle that make up racing all have to work together, but they all have sometimes opposing interests. They have common interests, but they have opposing interests too. And, and it's really hard. So I think a lot of what happened last year and some of what we're going to see this year is a science project. Some track operators stepped up and raised their hands and said, I'll give it a try. You know, and it may work for some, it may not work for others. Uh, some racetracks may find it, this isn't going to happen. So what, 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 what else is my fit in this schedule going forward? Where else, how, um, I think, I think it's a bit of a science project and a necessary one. Um, and, and everybody deserves a fair chance to see if it'll work before they start saying, need something else, need something else. You know, let's, let's see if it works first. Yeah. So Alan, you were the point man for this for a long time with NASCAR. I mean, you were considered one of, one of, yeah, but the, one of the voices uh, in the sport for such a long time. And I think really about, and this is going to be kind of an odd question, but I think about like how much money, and we talk about this money pie and you were just talking about how all this kind of works together. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, television spends a lot of money for rights for NASCAR. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense that they are in a way kind of driving the ship when it comes to some of the decisions that are made when it comes to where the races are going to be, when the races are going to be on. Obviously, start times has become like this big flashpoint thing of like, why don't we go back to one o'clock? Could, could you lend a little bit of insight into just those? Were you in any of these meetings? Were this like, was this like executive level? Because I think people see this as like an executive sitting at a big desk and like munching on a cigar, like a, like a comic book villain. But I, I know that's yeah. not the case. Yeah. I know these are discussions that are being had with NASCAR and TV, but just how much is TV kind of pulling the, the reins on a lot of this? A, a lot. Now, here's the first thing I'll say to preface everything else I'm going to say. 
there are people who hold those big executive jobs for these various parts of the industry, TV networks, NASCAR, uh, manufacturers, not by accident. They're all really smart and they got there because they're pretty good at what they do and they earned their way there. So perfect. The, the guy sitting back with his feet up on the desk, chomping a stogie, that ain't how this works. You know, these people are working their guts off. They've spent many, many, many millions of dollars to purchase the rights to televise this sport. Most likely the largest single income source the sport has right now. 100%. <laughs> they deserve a seat at the table in how those decisions are made, just as the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, every other sport you can think of that has a significant TV presence. TV is probably their largest single source of income. And so they do deserve a seat at the table. Uh, the, the, the later starts thing is a very simple formula. Our country's not all in the same time zone. And research, not just I think, but research has shown that the closer to 6 p.m., maybe even between 6 and 7 p.m., that checkered flag waves, the higher the rating. It's that simple. What is the TV network's job? Get the biggest audience possible for this telecast. I can start the telecast at 1 o'clock, but your rating is going to go down. So when you're out there trying to, you know, lean on some of that TV information to sell your sponsorships or, you know, you're going back to the television network because it's time to renew the rights and the ratings have gone down, that, that's all going to come, come to pay at the negotiation window. So, yeah, television in every sport is absolutely has a seat at the table over, over everything, but they don't make the final decision. They have their input but they don't make the final decision. The final decision still comes from NASCAR and they have to do what's best for their business and all of the constituents in their business. Like I said before, that, that three-legged group of constituents, there's, no, there's rarely one decision that's gonna be the absolute best for all three of them, rarely. You gotta pick one and sometimes it favors one group over the other and it's not ideal, but it's the right decision. And the yeah. decisions that were made of kind of where to place the races, Alan, like right now we have two major broadcast partners, that's Fox and NBC. And how a race in the Cup Series, we'll just stick there because that'll be the easiest thing to do, how that is placed on big Fox or big NBC versus like a Fox Sports 1 NBC Sports Network, that's something that's kind of confusing to casual fans where they're like, well, why is this not just on NBC every mm -hmm. week? And of course, I've had these discussions where I go, well, actually, the thing is, NASCAR is such a good property that by putting it on a smaller network, it kind of helps boost the numbers for the smaller network. But that's just not something that a normal fan understands. Right. And, and, and again, so, so the one message I would have for fans is, hey, these decisions aren't made in a vacuum. They're made by smart people trying to do what's best for the sport, What's best for the TV network, what's best for the track, what's best for the fan, what's best for the race team, that's all falls under that guise of what's best for the sport. And sometimes you have to make those compromises in those decisions. Um, where to place the races, you know, why isn't every race on Fox or on NBC? Well, part of the value of buying the rights to this 
is getting some programming for FS1 and for NBCSN that's going to draw a pretty good rating. That makes the sale of FS1 and NBCSN to your local cable operator more valuable. Makes you know, th There's a zillion cable channels your local cable, cable operator can put in your package. What separates one from the other? Well, in, in this case, it's Part of, part of it is their NASCAR package. So, you know, what, what other events are going on that the network holds the rights to? Well, the, um, when the Olympics come on, you're not getting anything on NBC, period. That is the single biggest property that they have ever. And it's going to tie up every single one of their networks and it's going to tie it up for two weeks. Rightfully so. So if NASCAR wants to set a little pause in its schedule around the Olympics to work with its partner, NBC, then it'll do it. And if they don't, then they may have to find someplace else to show a couple of races, you know? So why is there that chunk in the schedule this summer? Because the Olympics are coming up. Rightfully so. Uh, when, when NBC has the, um, um, pick a, pick a, pick a, uh, another summer or fall event, Sunday night football, Sunday Night Football is the highest rated show on primetime television. Not just sports show. The highest rated television program every week. We're not going to have a NASCAR race run over across to the front of Sunday Night Football. If NASCAR fans want to be insulted by that, so be it. Can't help them. But, but the reality is the races are scheduled to finish before then. If they get rained on or whatever, you move them. Because you don't mess with Sunday Night Football. I wouldn't. And as you know... I kind of have a passion for this racing thing as a, as a, as a network executive, there's no way I'm moving the start of that football game on Sunday night for the finish of a race. You don't do it. So a lot of things go into those decisions. And again, really smart people make those decisions. They don't make them carelessly and they don't make them casually. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, when we talk about this year, I mean, you, you had mentioned, uh, experimental, or you said, you said science experiment, um, for this year. And we learned so much during 2020 in the sport. And I feel like this year too, I mean, the first thing that I can think of, I mean, we have a new car coming next year and we, and a lot of teams are using these cars, you know, to get rid of them because they're useless after this year. Uh, we're throwing the cup series on a dirt track. Um, that's another thing. That's a big experimental move. Uh, but there's so many things that are just, we're really trying out and you, you do kind of feel like this year is a, a big experimental year for NASCAR. I mean, from, from the TV perspective as well. Here's, here's what I think is the greatest thing about all of this. If you think back to the time in the sport, when the ratings were the highest, when the ticket sales were the highest, when the sport seemed like it was just exploding every week, more and more and more. One of the features of that period in time were that new things were happening. New tracks opened up. We went to new cities. We had new adventures to go on. It wasn't just the same thing over and over and over and over again. And I think that maybe that, that, that um, repetition Got a little boring. Not afraid to say it. Got a little boring. Going new places, trying new things, all applause to them. It will get people's attention and give first race on a dirt track. 
I already know some people, they want to see that. They might not have watched the race for the last five years. They want to see that. And you know what? I do too. Yeah. Well, Alan, are you aware? And look, you have not have acknowledged this on Twitter, but are you aware at how many people want you back at a NASCAR track behind a microphone? I, um, I am. Um, I've always been surrounded by great people. Um, I've never done anything by myself in this business. I've always been part of a team. Uh, you know, very few people do anything by themselves in this business. I've been fortunate to be a part of some great teams over the years and uh, their reputation has rubbed off on me. Um, I've had a great run in the sport. I never planned any of this to start with. It all sort of happened by accident. Uh, just as my no longer being a regular participant in it kind of happened by accident. Uh, whether I'm ever back in the sport again or not will be an accident or just, you know, whatever happens, happens. Um, the people that are doing those jobs now, I consider friends and I think do a darn good job. And, uh, and I wish them all the success in the world. Uh, I'm having fun doing things uh, that, I'm, that I'm having fun doing. But um, uh, I, I have been very blessed over the years to be well, well and warmly received by fans. And, and I'm eternally humbled by that, believe me. Yeah. And a, a lot of people think that, you know, on, on Twitter and whoever's talking about it, that you're, you know, very distant from the sport and you can find out just by everything you're talking about now, you still, I mean, you're still following the sport and I mean, you covered it for so long. So you obviously know the ins and outs of NASCAR, but yeah, I mean, you're still following and watching races as much as you can during the weekends, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's, um, it's been a, a, a massive part of my life uh, from the time I was young. And my dad had a second division 52 and a half Studebaker uh, short track car at Seacock Speedway in Massachusetts um, to when I stumbled into a job with MRN in the mid 1980s. Um, I was a fan. Uh, I can remember sitting on the floor of my house in New Jersey at one of the many stops in my broadcasting career, listening to MRN on a scratchy AM radio station out of Pennsylvania, uh, listening to Barney and, uh, might've been Barney and Mike then. I don't think it had gone to Barney and Eli by then, but anyway, um, I'm a fan. It's a, it's a special group of people. It's a special, special thing. You will never get me to say otherwise. Uh, Daytona, you know, I lived in Daytona for a long time. Our office used to be on the infield of the speedway. We had the key to the gate. You know, my kids grew up in Daytona. Uh, sometimes coming to the speedway on weekends in the off season to, to run around while I worked inside the office. So uh, too many memories, too special a time uh, to ever look back on with anything but fondness. And uh, if, if I did my last race long ago, it's been a great run. Yeah, it was, we all love you in the sport and as a, as a commentator and a reporter and everything that you did. And I did have one thing that was on my mind and you talked about the stories and the things, how in this time you have to have your cell phone and, you know, messaging with teams and drivers to deliver these stories because on these broadcasts in the booth, you got to have 
things you talk about things other than what's directly going on out on the track. You know, you got stories to tell that develop over the weekend. And when Jamie little was on here, she was telling us about how she had to get those this year. And she was telling Tommy Joe about, you know, the drivers that'll come up, you know, to the reporters and make sure they get their story heard, but how important, you know, and you can say from your past years of broadcasting, um, how important was it to have those full weekends and, get those stories so you can tell them, you know, on, on national TV. Well, I, I think, I think it's critical to have, you know, look, the great thing to all of this is making you care. This comes from Ken Squire. Um, before that, one of my other broadcasting heroes, Jim McKay, you know, he made, he made a living for years. Uh, younger people look him up. Um, by making you care, taking some obscure event, the figure eight demolition derby from Islip Speedway that they'd show on ABC Wide World of Sports and they'd find a way to make you care, there'd be a hero and a villain in that thing somewhere. Well, isn't that what racing is? Think about anything from your, your local Saturday night, right? There was somebody that was the villain and somebody that was the hero. I can remember being at, at Seacock Speedway when Jeff Bodine was in his year of winning 55 out of 80 modified races that he entered. And Jeff came to Seacock, and Jeff was the villain. And guys there like Bug Stevens and Ron Bouchard, they were the heroes, you know. And it's what makes the electricity crackle in the sport. Well, how do you tell those stories if you don't get them? How do you make somebody care about somebody without that story? That's the magic, you know. That's the magic. And um, making somebody care. Making somebody a Tommy Joe Martins fan, you know, that's the magic of television and what it can do to make somebody a fan of the sport. Well, Alan, you have now given me such a tremendous segue that it's almost like I slipped you a 20 before we got started with this. Because <laughs> I, I, wanted, I wanted to tell a story about you and a personal interaction that I had that I know is just so small. And this is just such a procedural part of your job that you did, but I, but I think it's important. So I was making my first Xfinity start. It was 2014. It was at uh, Phoenix Raceway, and you were doing the broadcast for ESPN. And I can tell you that we sucked. I can tell you that flatly, that eventually my team wound up going out of business later in the year. But you talked to me and you came by the trailer looking for me by name. Wanted to write, you had a notepad. You wanted to take down some notes where I was from. You asked me some questions about the team. What were the goals of the team? What were the sponsors? What was going on? Well, later in the year, I was running at Talladega. I think I was running fourth or fifth or sixth. I was, I was up in, in the mix, as it tends to happen at Talladega, as people get shuffled around. And it was right before a commercial break. And I will still remember it to this day, because it's still brought up by my family and my friends, that you were able to kind of work in everything in a little 30 second run of like, here's Tommy Joe Martins. This is a small team guy out of Como, Mississippi. He was a broadcast journalism major. He went to Ole Miss and now he's up here at the front at Talladega. We'll be right back. And so that's something that you did at Phoenix that paid off at Talladega. And here's the thing for me, Alan, and this is as somebody now that has been a participant in the sport for a long time. I can tell you, that you're still the only person that has ever done that. So what do you have to say about that? 
I considered it part of the job that everybody that I'd never met before, everybody that was racing for the first time to go find them, find out something about them. Um, one of my questions, yours was easy, but one of my questions is how does your mom want your name pronounced? Cause you don't want to piss off mama at home. Yeah. <laughs> right. How does your mom, how does your mom want your name pronounced? And somebody say, Oh, I said, however you want it. No, that's not what I asked you. Yeah. How do you want it said? That's what's important here. And you know what? The camera may never find you. But if it does, and there's a reason, I got something. That's called homework. Uh, and and it, it may never, ever, ever, ever see the light of day. But you became a factor in that race at Talladega. And I had the goods. Because I... Because I because I went and did the work at Phoenix, and and the interesting part of that for me, and this is where I so you know Nate Ryan as I'm sure you know Nate, and I adore Nate, love Nate. Was on his podcast a couple of years ago now, and before we even got on the podcast, my big gripe to Nate was that I felt like, and I told the story. This is again same story I just told you, kind of offhand, before we even recorded anything. And he said, well, that's Alan, <laughs> number one. But I said, I guess maybe that's why for me as a new kid coming into the sport, when I was 2014, nobody knew who the hell I was. Didn't really matter. I was on a crappy team that eventually went out of business, right? So I was a spec. But my impression was that, oh, well, you know, the media is going to kind of come find me here and at least ask, how'd you get here? What are the spots? You know, kind of like at least get to know who I was in case I had success. And what I found was that that was just simply a rarity. <laughs> that was not something that normally happens. Well, the other side of that, here's the other side of that coin. I did a seminar a few years ago for um, drivers on the indie, indie feeder system uh, during, during month of May. And I, I said to, to some of the, and you know, look, a lot of these guys were, were so young, they didn't look like they'd even started shaving yet. Okay. <laughs> But I said to them, I said, look, when we're running around the racetrack, we're busy. We're on the air for God knows how many hours in a day. We've got 15 shows to do on Friday with all the different practice. And we're supposed to get ready for the weekend. And, you know, uh, in the motorhome era, people don't necessarily make themselves available to you uh, till just before practice. Well, by the time just before practice comes, I'm up at the broadcast booth. And I might get to not get done up there till I said, I said to these young guys, if you see me running around the racetrack and I got my head down, it's because I'm thinking about stuff, but that doesn't mean I'm not stoppable. I said, this, this conversation works both ways. You see me walking past, stop me and say, hi, I'll be happy to take a minute and say hi, but I will always look like I'm busy and on the way to someplace because kind of the, the noodle doesn't stop cranking when you're, when you're getting ready for a show, you know, but that does work both ways. And especially in this day and age where access is limited. So now we got one pit reporter covering the entire field. Okay. I got to prioritize my workload here. Where am I going to start? I'm going to start at that end of the garage Sure. And I don't know, I don't know how far down the garage I'm going to get before I just flat run out of time. You know, this year, that same situation couldn't have happened. Right. Because I couldn't come into the garage to find you and say, hey, tell me something about yourself. 
But I feel like it's part of the job is, is doing the, doing the work. Um, everybody's got family. Everybody's got a story. You never know when that story is going to, going to become important. And uh, you can't tell that story if you don't have it. And that's something that for me personally, Alan, I can say, uh, and I wrote about this in 2016 when I did blogs and a lot of stuff was about kind of like the feeling that when you were on a smaller team, that at times it was, it was almost felt like you were irrelevant. Like you were out there, but nobody really was noticing. Nobody was talking to you. And there was a way to almost disappear. And you felt like you were putting your heart and soul into something, but it's like, it didn't matter. And so for me, again, here personally gushing, I always had a ton of respect for you because you made me feel very relevant at a time where legitimately, I can tell you, I was the most irrelevant that I've ever been in my my nine years of doing this. That was literally the worst that I've ever been at it. Well, you know, it's the chicken or the egg thing, right? I mean, everybody wants the media to help them get sponsors. Uh, But that's not, that's not our job. Our job is to cover the race. Well, where, and this is the complexity of broadcasting NASCAR or or IndyCar or any auto racing thing. Uh, Even golf is this way. Every second of every minute of that race, there's one most important place for the camera to be. What is it? Is it the lead? Is it second? Is it a pass for fifth? Is it back in the garage area? Is it on pit road? Where is it? And people have to make those decisions every second of every lap. And I, I, I've, I've had this conversation with a number of team owners just, and that decision just might not be on your car that's running in 19th place. Cause our job is not to get you sponsors. Our job is to get us audience and document the race. So get yeah, back to that, that triangle of people with all a common goal, but yet maybe different needs within that goal. That's one of them. That's, that's been an eternal struggle of television within the sport and you'll never solve it ever. The one, the one thing though, as a follow-up to that, and, and this is not me. All right. So yeah, sure. Do I share some of this opinion, but I know that it has been a mass opinion in the sport is that it feels like the coverage there from the time where it was your MRN prime to now 2020, it feels like the coverage has narrowed. Like I watch older broadcasts of the race and somebody that was running 30th went out of the race and there was still some version of like a, Hey, we're going to follow up with Hut Strickland here and talk about, man, you had a tough day today. Hutt. What, what happened out there? You know, and it, and it felt like there was more interaction with more of the field. Now, is this just like a pressed for time thing or is this something that has kind of been narrowed focus? It, what, what's the reasoning here? The racing has dictated that. And, and people are going to look at me and say, what? Well, again, where's the most important place for that camera to be at any second in this race? Racing's been pretty darn good up front. <laughs> you know, it's been hard to leave that front of the pack. Whereas maybe in years past, things might have been a little spread out. And we said, okay, I'm bored. Let's go find something to talk about that'll keep the show moving forward and keep it interesting, make yeah. you care. It can be hard to leave the front of the pack sometimes these days. Really hard. And more restarts, more more yeah. more commercial breaks, more time. Yeah, there's no more there's Ages. no more commercial breaks. <laughs> yeah. There are no more commercial breaks. That's a fallacy. There are no more 
commercial breaks. That's limited. Literally, it's limited how many they can do in an hour. Um, yeah, you hear that, Reddit? You hear that? You hear yeah. that Reddit? Tag Reddit in this. <laughs> I can only tell the truth. But, <laughs> but the number of other things that are happening in the race. Okay, get a caution flag. Well, where maybe 25 years ago, you wouldn't even show the pit stops. You get the commercial thud. Now, the pit stops and the restart are your greatest chance of the lead changing or something significant happening in the race. Okay, caution flag. Do we have time to get the commercials done before the pit stops? Most tracks, the answer to that is no. Maybe you get time to get a replay or two into the wreck, make sure the driver's okay and it's got now all the, you know, all those kinds of important things. Here we go, pit stops. Well, the important moment of those pit stops could be anywhere along that football field long pit road. Which one's it going to be? Where do I put the camera? Now, come off pit road, boom. All right, we got two and a half minutes to get a commercial in before they're going to restart because we've got to be back for the restart because that's when exciting things can happen. Boom, go. Back for the restart. They race, 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 race. Okay, it's settled down. We got to get to a break because the clock has ticked on. And, and those things do happen on a clock. So the racing has changed. And that's what's taken away a lot of the opportunity to do some of the more, the, the pace of the broadcast. I think this is the best way I can describe it. The pace of the broadcast now is like a qualifying lap at Bristol. <laughs> Whereas years ago, it used to be like a solo practice lap at Talladega. You just had more time to do things, you know? Whereas now there's so much going on in a short period of time that it's harder to leave it. And, and you don't have the need to fill as much. The action carries itself. Yeah, that's definitely a thing with stage racing. Now, you know, the races are broken into parts and I feel like when you start stage one or stage two, you know, there is a time where there's green flag racing, but, you know, there's also times where you're okay. Now the commentators are preparing for the end of stage one, you know, what strategies are people on, you know, who is going to pit before the stage or whatever's going on, or the racing's close because there's more cautions. And I mean, if there's a caution in between stage one and stage two, then that just breaks it up into even more pieces. So that is before, you know, when you start, especially the, the Coke 600 now, I mean, they split that into four stages so it's just stint after stint after stint. Whereas before, you know, you'd start the race and you're like, oh, wow, we got 600 laps and you're preparing, you know, for the rest of the race. And I mean, I've been watching over the off season, some old Coke 600s and how they used to go without the four stages. And immediately when you start, you're talking about the end of the race, you know, how are these guys going to get to the end of the race and doing things in between, um, gosh, I was just watching an ESPN race today and you had the, the eight TNT pit crew vote you had like votes going on during the race you could vote for who had the best pit crew uh who the best driver was i think there were so many things different things that went on uh, as to today you know with all the stage racing and i think that definitely plays a big factor into it uh it's just there there are just more points that you have to meet in the race with the telecast than there used to be and yeah. what that has done is collapsed the available time to do other things and, and it's challenging. It's very challenging to be the person sitting in that chair, making that 
every second decision of where's the most important point for this camera and our coverage to be really tough job. Yeah, for sure. And, and we'll, I want to wrap up with one, one final uh, thing here we can talk about and uh, we can talk about kind of moments in the booth. And I know I've seen things that, that you've done before where they're live streams and you talk about some of, you know, your favorite calls in the past. And um, I, I noticed one today that I was just watching the, the 2012 Watkins Glen race finish between Ambrose and Keselowski and Kyle Busch, that whole, that whole finish. I mean, that was awesome uh, for me as a fan watching that race. Uh, is that one of the races that goes up in your, your top five, top 10 as uh, favorite things you've called before? Or no? Oh goodness. <laughs> I don't have such rankings yeah. because it would be impossible. Um, the sheer volume of races and great races and great moments that I've had the pleasure to, to be part of um, is overwhelming to me. And when people start bringing some of those things up to me, it's like my eyes start to get big. Like, do I, do I remember this? What, where, where are we going with this? Yes, I do. Um, one of the things we made a really conscious effort at with our ESPN crew, uh, Dale Jarrett and Andy Petrie and I, particularly the three of us, You've got eyeballs. If you're watching television, you can see what's on the screen. We don't need to be talking every second of it for you to see it. Yeah. Now, how can we add to it in some way, in some brief way? How can we add to it? So if you go back and watch that last lap, there's actually probably a pretty significant portion of that last lap where nobody's saying anything. Or if they are, it's in very brief bursts at a time. Um, and by the way, we're all race fans. We were enjoying the heck out of it just like you were, you know, just had a better seat for it. So um, I'm really proud of the way our, our, our crew did what we did. Um, it wasn't by accident. It was by design. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I I have no regrets there. I think, I think we did some great television and, uh, and we did the sport well. And that's, that's always been a, an important thing for me is, is, you know, did we, did we, did we conclude our responsibility to the sport properly? And my answer will always be yes. Yeah. I, I agree for sure. <laughs> yeah. You got a couple of guys sitting here, Alan, that are going to agree with you on that. And uh, I know for about the, whatever, 8,000th time we do miss having you around. And I know I speak for a lot of people saying that. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you may see me around a little bit, but uh, I haven't gone away. And, uh, and I'll still be following along and, and uh, can't, you know, look, there's no better day of the year than Daytona 500 day, is there? Uh, yeah. I can't, can't wait for it to get going. And um, don't know that I'll be there this year because I think basketball is going to keep me away. But, uh, but you can bet I'll have an eyeball on it, even if on delay. Yeah. Do you ever formulate any plans during the off season to, to go see some races during the year? Have you, have you thought about that at all? Uh, it always happens usually spontaneously and, and, and last minute because um, yeah. schedules these days are not quite as predictable as they used to be. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, we really appreciate having you on. We'll let you go and, and finish yeah, up uh, the podcast here. And it, it's definitely been an honor to have you here and, and hopefully we'll maybe keep in touch and do something again in the future. Pleasure. Wish you both uh, a great 2021 and, uh, and uh, safe and healthy and, and good luck to you. 
<laughs> Same to you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. New Year. Appreciate it. Thanks. And we're back here, Drivers Meeting Podcast, Alan Bestwick, our first guest of 2021. It was awesome to have him on and he bring up so much interest. I mean, it was it was just awesome to hear him talk about it because, I mean, there's not many better people that could have been talking about what we we're talking about with, with TV and all that stuff. And I mean, I learned some things myself as well um, from him and from what he talked about. I mean, was there anything that, that you picked out or that really caught your mind that was super interesting about what he was saying and talking about? Uh, I think it's really interesting getting into his description of how they called the race and that being a choice. So it was a direct choice for Alan Beswick, who has the best voice in the business, yeah. to sit here and go, you know what? I don't have to speak as much. And comparing that to what has kind of become the norm in NASCAR, and this is not me putting any opinion in this whatsoever, but it is definitely a difference compared to the broadcast that we are currently listening to in most of the booths where it's drivers um, that are maybe doing part-time announcing, maybe guys that aren't up there every week. And there is a noticeable level of more animation and more loud and reacting and whoa, and have you heard all that? That is a noticeable difference from what we got versus the Alan Bestwick days. Now allow me to interject a little bit here. Obviously, I prefer the Alan Bestwick days. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we're talking, we got a chance to talk today with uh, one of the best that's ever done. Yeah, that was, he's definitely one of the best. And um, I'm glad we did get to plug in a little bit that how much we miss him a few times for the, like you said, the 8,000 time. And, you know, definitely, definitely touched me a little bit when he was saying how, uh, how, you know, if it was, you know, if I have already called my last race, then it's been a great run. Hopefully not. I mean, we hope that we can give him at least one last hurrah, you know, I mean, somebody, you know, gives them a shot to commentate a race because I mean, I mean, who in their right minds wouldn't want Alan Bestwick, you know, commentating a race. And one thing that he really said about commentating, he said, everybody has eyeballs. They know what's going on on the, on the track. We don't need to be talking every second of it. And I think that was just something he did so well. You know, when you look back at iconic moments that he was in the booth for and like Watton's gun, like I brought up, there was the time where you were just, you were glued to the screen of what was going on. There was silence, but it's because you were so glued to the screen and you could really soak in what was going on. And then of course, Alan Bestwick's iconic voice in the background, you know, making an iconic call or saying something. Um, everybody's in the grass in the, in the bus stop. Um, I mean, that, that whole finish was awesome. He, he's had so many of those where it feels like he just knows what to say at the right moment. And he knows exactly when to talk and, and when to not. And, you know, that comes as with everyone else in the booth with him, you know, Dale Jarrett and Andy Petrie or whoever was up there, you know, with him at the current time. And I just feel like they, they did such a great job. And I mean, if, if there was some day where we could get Bestwick back or all three of them back for a race, I would, I would totally be up for that. Well, we worry here, RJ, that we sound like the couple of old dudes where we're, you know, like the Muppets, like the old guys yeah. sitting up in the 
yeah. in the booth just saying everything sucks now. And that's not what's happening. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's we're... really not. I love watching racing right now. Like Adam yeah. Alexander, for example, in my series, you know, I told that story about, about at the time, Bestwick coming and meeting me. Adam Alexander has done that since. And I've seen him do it with other people. So it's not like this doesn't happen. And it's not like Adam Alexander is doing a bad job. He's doing a great job. Great job. Oh, yeah. The thing is that we think Alan Beswick is just the best one that we've ever heard do it. Yeah. And it becomes frustrating because you go, dang, why is he not still doing this? And that's that's the part that isn't lining up with the people that I have. I, you know, I like to poke fun at Reddit. But they're at, on Reddit and in the Twitter sphere and online in general. I, I get it. Like this is a, I pulled this up. I didn't get a chance to read this in front of Alan because we started talking about a whole lot of other stuff. But this is an actual I'm going to quote Reddit. So everybody just <laughs> if you had that in the 2021 pool on the dartboard, uh, you can go ahead and you go ahead and knock that one off. Probably didn't see that coming. This is absolutely a quote from Reddit. And, and I feel like it encapsulates how we all feel. It's so, fr- quote, man, it's so frustrating. Nobody is hiring him. Obviously, I don't know why, but if there was a chance, he'd probably say something like, quote, stay tuned or can't wait for what's next, but still on the sidelines. And it's just so effing depressing. <laughs> So that's a quote from Reddit, and that's how we all feel. We talked about it with him just a minute ago, RJ. How did he handle it when we say, man, everybody misses you so much. You did such a wonderful job, and you did a special job doing it. And he goes, well, the exact classy way that we expected him, there's no bitterness. There's nothing. It was just like, ah, well, I was blessed to get to do it and all this, which just makes you miss him even more because, (laughs) of course, he's going to handle it that way. So there's a level of class uh, and dignity that he brought to the broadcast booth. Yeah. And I think he saw that, and especially the way that he spoke with us, that there was a level of reverence that he brought to that. Like, you know, it is kind of our duty to do this great because this is like as big as it gets. And I don't want to be the reason that this is getting messed up. And there was like a level of responsibility that he felt to the sport and to the audience. Yeah. And, you know, we don't know what the future holds for, for that and whether he'll come back, but if there is a SRX executive that's somehow listening to this podcast, uh, you might need a play-by-play commentator when your series starts up. Um, we, we know a guy, um, I'm pretty sure Tony Stewart knows, you know, knows a few people. So that would be awesome if, if, if they picked them up, but you know, it, it's just great, you know, to have him here. And it, it's awesome to hear that he's still following the series as much as he does too. Cause you know, sometimes you sit back and you think, you know, ah, oh, is he, is he really following it every week? And I know it's probably hard, you know, with everything he does now with college basketball, but it is great, you know, to hear how much, you know, he still follows the sport and he's still being a fan. And, you know, if he did ever come back, he'd just probably pick up right where he left off. I mean, he, he knows the ins and outs. He's been doing it for so long, so it'd be awesome. But yeah, like you said, we're not dissing what we have today. You know, we love Adam Alexander, Mike Joy, all those guys that that do you know NASCAR and bring it to us now. So, but Rick Allen gets a lot of crap. Yeah, Rick I like Allen. Rick Allen too. I've been listening to Rick Allen. Rick Allen. 
in the truck series all the way up to what he's doing now in the Cubs. Rick Allen's been doing this a long time. I'm not yeah. dissing Rick Allen. It's just that I love Allen Bestwick. <laughs> and we really want him to have a place at the table in one of those broadcasts. Yeah, one thing I was going to ask him, and I kind of forgot once we were letting him go, but when we come, you know, when you're a play-by-play commentator and when you have that one lap to go, you know, I kind of notice it at NBC how, yeah, you do have four guys up there and they talk a lot. But on that final lap, everyone usually shuts up and Rick Allen usually takes it away. If it's like a blowout win, if someone's ahead by a mile, you know, Rick Allen, it seems like he always has something prepared and something, you know, to say. Um, and, and sometimes it's, you know, it's really good. Uh, you know, I think the one that everyone remembers is when Jimmy Johnson won his seventh championship and he just like move over, you know, Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt. There's another seven time champ, Jimmy Johnson, as he crosses the line. Uh, there's so many other things and I was going to ask him, you know, as you're sitting there in the booth, you know, and there's a guy that you feel like is probably going to win this race. He's ahead by a few seconds. You're kind of preparing what you're going to say on that final lap. I, I, Rick Allen has to do it. I mean, there's no way that just spawns in his brain in five seconds. I mean, it could, but you got to be sitting there kind of formulating what you're going to say as, as the winner crosses the stripe. As prepared as Allen was for everything. Like I can tell you if he was prepared for Tommy Joe Martins to be on television, then the guy had thought about everything else (laughs) because the chances of that were low (laughs) <laughs> and he was still prepared for that 15-second segment 13 races later in the season from when he wound up getting an anecdote. So, I mean, yeah. it's just there's a level of professionalism that he brought to the job that, I, with all due respect to everyone doing it, I, I feel like we talked to the best in the biz. Yeah, for sure. And then there's got to be something, hopefully, you know, we love to look back and, and what Olives he's done for the sport. And you just hope maybe sometime in the future, something will get thrown together. We'll give them, you know, one last hurrah in the booth and whether we get people together, I'd, I'd love to see it. I mean, Hey, even if it's an iRacing event, who knows you get, we get, we got got a Snyder cut of Batman and whatever, you know, like justice league. And (laughs) if that can, if, if fans can, Make enough noise to make that happen. I think we can find enough noise yeah. to get out of Westwick back in a booth. Hopefully. We hope so. But, you know, as we, we get closer into 2021, uh, so much on the podcast, we talk about the Daytona 500 because that is the next race. Um, and today, they we've, I mean, we talk about this entry list a lot. And I think we've been talking hypothetically about NY racing because we know what happened last time when they entered the Daytona 500. But today they did announce uh, the team owner that they will enter the Daytona 500 and try to run the full season as an open team. And if I recall, this is exactly what they said two years ago, I think. (laughs) And none of that happened. But, you know, we're in a new time where we're getting rid of all these cars and all these, you know, teams are either coming back or new teams are coming along. So, uh, you know, they'll probably looks like they're entering that number 44 into the Daytona 500. Hopefully they can make it look good. Um, But it looks like there's no driver announced yet, but they will be uh, in the 500 and as an open team. So that makes, I believe, you know, it's it's kind of a not a confirmed number, but I think we're right now around maybe 43, 44 that have said they will show up to Daytona with some, you know, with some questionables. We still don't know if, you know, the Spire money team, 
Gone Brothers Racing. Um, you know, we assume GoFast is probably going to be there, um, but they haven't made a confirmed, you know, big press release driver, you know, whatever, all that stuff. So we have potential for definitely a very uh, big Daytona 500 uh, coming this this week or this month, next month. <laughs> yeah, and this is what we've been talking about, right? Is that we're building, we're building, and with this being the biggest paying race in NASCAR, and also the end of a of an era of a car. Yeah. It's kind of the perfect storm for more cars to show up to this event than we have had in the past. Um, and it's going to make those duels more exciting than they have been over the last few years. Now, I can say for a fan standpoint, that's going to be great. And for the teams, that's obviously going to be very stressful uh, because I know that all of those teams that are sitting there with open uh, positions going into this race – they're going to be looking at that entry list and updating it and refreshing it every day as it feels like there's just new people coming out of the woodwork, uh, just like the 44 team that we just talked about. So uh, as far as them running the full season, I think I speak for everyone in NASCAR, both in the sport and, uh, you know, covering the sport, just, you know, prove it to us. That's it. Just prove it to us. This is the same Obica racing situation where you just go, that sounds great. Just, you know, show us. I don't wish any bad luck to you, but clearly there was some stuff that happened behind the scenes here uh, the first go around. And you wonder, is that going to be a trend uh, for the second time? And what makes the Daytona 500 very interesting now, because there are an open team. And that means they are not guaranteed into a race. And there are many races that don't have qualifying. So we're starting off the season with a fresh slate of points. And, you know, you do have the, you know, seven or eight races that will have qualifying and that we will see more open teams show up. You know, colleague already said they'll be there for most of those races. Uh, and we'll see what happens with everyone else. But, you know, if NY Racing comes into this and they put their car in the Daytona 500 and say an MBM Motorsports car doesn't, that puts them ahead of them in points to get in to the next race. The, you know, whatever the next race is that doesn't have qualifying. We'll just say Las Vegas as an example. That puts them ahead to get into that race. You know, we'll see how that goes, you know, with charters, anything can change at any moment by how they're letting people into races. But you know, if we go by what we did last year, it would be, it would make the Daytona 500 even more important as per se, if they really were considering entering every race this season, so they can put themselves in these races. Cause you know, back, yeah, uh, this, you know, it's interesting, RJ, you're bringing this up and, and not to speak over you here, but what you're bringing up, that point situation is something that has been brought up to me multiple times by Carl Long, uh, personally, where he has told me that the 62 car of Beard Motorsports over the last few years would traditionally only run those four speedway races. But they looked at those like, hey, if we go get a couple of top tens, which they normally would, that would almost just running those four races would give them more points than Carl Long running his car all year, right? So if yeah. you know that you're a 35th place team, and you've heard me talk about this and Carl understands his car and his limitations. He understands it. 
Well, if you're finishing 30, eh, 30th to 35th every week, you're only getting five or six points a race. Tops. At times, you're going to go and run, oh, well, we just ran 36th today. All right, we got one point. And if you're the beard team and you got a few stage points and you finished eighth at a place where you could finish eighth, well, it basically made up for you not being in 10 races potentially where somebody could have made up points on you, right? So those smaller teams, those really underfunded teams, those teams in the back that are routinely finishing in that 33 to 37, 38 range, they are getting just minuscule points and a big finish in the 500, RJ, like you're talking about, for one of these teams that maybe we don't see it coming. Maybe, maybe the 44 car makes its way in and it gets in the race and there's a lot of attrition and there's some wild stuff happens and they wind up getting a top 20 or a top 15 or something like that. Well, not only financially does that change the team, but also from a points position, it basically makes their entire year and, and puts them in a position where they can pick and choose the races they want to go to. And they would have priority to get into those races as there's only going to be four open yeah. And then we talk about stories so much with TV and everything. This would be something interesting, you know, if, if Fox were to cover it, you know, if they were to just mention during the broadcast, you know, Hey, there is a lot on the line here for these teams battling, you know, because if this team qualifies, they do make sure they ensure themselves in that top 40 cut when we don't have qualifying. Um, and it, it, there's also, we talked about it last week about how there are, you know, two cars that get in from single car qualifying. So the cars that, you know, we can assume that colleague racing, that a colleague racing car will probably, unless it, you know, explodes or something like the Xfinity cars did last year, um, yeah. it will probably out-qualify, you know, the MBM cars and a Gaunt Bros car like it did last year. Um, but, you know, it allows these teams, like, we don't know how, you know, fast NY racing will show up, but we don't imagine they're going to out-qualify college racing or even Beard Motorsports car. So, you know, there are some teams that will probably have to prepare themselves to go and race in the duel. And we will definitely see some, some very competitive battles this year in the duel. I imagine we'll see a lot, uh, you know, more cars than we had last year. And um, I'm looking forward to... Uh, to this year's 500 and next year's 500 for sure with, with the new car, we'll see how many teams show up then. Yeah. And I think that the, the structure is going to change too, RJ, as we go to that new car. And there has been the talk of like, well, when the new car comes, we're basically getting rid of open teams yeah. and, and we don't wouldn't necessarily be getting rid of them by the rule book. But the reason that so many people are showing up to Daytona is because it is the biggest paid race of the year by far. And so these open teams that normally get less money at the other races than what a chartered team would get, they look at Daytona and go, it's so much money on the table there. It doesn't even matter that I'm an open team. I'm still going to go down there and try to get that money. And this is what I have heard from reports here, that it is over a quarter of a million dollars, even as an open team. So it is definitely incentivized. Now, look, I will tell you as a team owner, that if you were going to try to build a car, get cup licenses for a bunch of people, lease an engine to get into the race, and go down there and do it, it's going to cost you every dollar of one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000 to try to put that one deal together just for that race. So, yeah, I guess you could look at it like, well, if I'm making a break-even, 
that's that's one way of looking at it. And you get to run the 500, but that's a lot of risk. And so the teams that are going and doing this, for the most part, RJ, you're seeing that they were already established teams, yeah. teams that already had the infrastructure, people to work on the cars. So for an upstart like that 44 team that we mentioned, that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot that they're having to come up with at the front end to go risk it. And, and like we just said, Daytona is really almost the entire season in one race. Like if it goes well, great. If they miss, that's all that money out with nothing coming back in yep. right at the beginning of the year. And as somebody that has lived through that, I can tell you it's pretty tough to just pack up and show up to the next race when you didn't get that check. Yeah. Yeah, definitely for sure. And, and now let's switch gears here to wrap it up to the Xfinity series. I, I do hear there's some more Xfinity series news possibly coming tomorrow, uh, silly season. Um, you know, some rides being announced in that area, but we did find out this week that the two Mike Harmon racing cars that are run full-time, um, as kind of expected, Kyle Weatherman will run the 47 full-time and it is expected that Bailey Curry will likely run the full season. Uh, at least that's his goal to run it in the 74. And then they'll probably have a third part-time car. As Mike said, I believe a month ago, uh, the goal was to kind of have a third car in case, you know, Greg Alding or Joe Nemechek or whoever, uh, came and ran a race or himself. So, uh, you know, we look at that and there's, I believe SS Greenlight Racing's making their announcement tomorrow. So we'll see what they have to offer, um, as far as who's in their cars. Um, but, um, I mean, I know that's one thing that your catches your eye because we, I mean, we talk about so much about that battle in that area and the pack of the Xfinity series. So, uh, you looking forward to uh, battling uh, Kyle Weatherman, Bailey Curry out there next year? Yeah, a couple of a couple of hard nosed young racers, and I and I say that with a lot of respect for what they do um, and what they have done for my Carmen Racing, and in a way, legitimized my Carmen Racing. And oh, yeah. that look that that immediately is going to be taken like, oh, you're saying they weren't legitimate before? No, but there was definitely the perception that they were cutting corners, not the best equipment, not that competitive. How many people are they showing up to the track with? There was a perception of Mike Harmon racing. And I would say that when I look at it as an industry person here, as a participant, that the team that overachieved the most in this past year is 100% Mike Harmon racing. And that is a lot due to the work ethic and the driving talent of Bailey Curry and Kyle Weatherman, both getting in the shop and getting their hands dirty and working on the cars and putting the time in that way and doing a great job driving them on a racetrack. And I think Mike, who has always, you know, put himself in the car now looks at this as he's gotten older and gone, you know what, really the best thing for Mike Harmon racing was when I was just the owner of Mike Harmon racing. And I put two young hungry, hardworking kids in the car, and they elevated this to where their best finish of the year was better than ours. They had an eighth at Kentucky. <laughs> they had an eighth place in Kentucky. Everybody forgets that. And did they have a lot of mechanical issues? They did. And did they have limitations with their budget and tires and what they could do in every race? They did. Yeah. But I felt like they were competitive. And in the last race of the year, wind up with a top 15 there at Phoenix. Yeah. And, and this is a team – that is way under the radar right now. And somebody that for me as a competitor, I look at them and go, 
you know what? That is not a, a car we can overlook in the field anymore. Yep. And and that says so much about them. And I'm so happy for both of them to be rewarded in this way with a chance to be full-time, get more established, be in the points discussion with, yeah. with guys like me up there rather than having declared or, or not run the full allotment of races. Uh, they'll be in the points discussion. And, and, and I, I'm really happy for them. And with SS Greenlight, that was one of those teams that we circled, RJ, right? As like, we're just, we haven't heard anything. We don't yeah. know what's going on. Uh, now we're obviously expecting Joe Graff to be back in the 08. That is kind of the, yep. the, the general consensus here was that that was a multi-rate, a multi-year deal. Yeah. But that 07 was uh, the way I refer to it is kind of a rotation car, right? Mm-hmm. Where there were just different drivers every week. They had a partnership um, with Rick Ware racing where they were bringing in some of their drivers in there. Garrett Smithley and David Starr uh, drove that car uh, a few times. That's cool. But it seems like they're teasing something else. It seems like they're teasing that this could be a full-time ride in both that 07 and 08 car. And that obviously would shake up the points and the complexion of the series. Yeah, for sure. Those are definitely rides and and cars capable of doing something and running up their full-time points. We got a lot of full-time drivers this year in the Xfinity series. A lot to look forward to in that top 12 that we talked about in the middle. So uh, with saying that, a lot to look forward to in 2021. Are there any... I mean, number one goal you can think of for this year as we kick off the new year. <laughs> Let me just get to Daytona first, RJ, and then All we right. start talking. <laughs> we'll get to Daytona. We gotta, um, yeah, make sure we uh, get there in one piece and make it to the Daytona, Daytona 500, the Xfinity Series race, Daytona the Truck Race, Daytona. I can't wait for Speed Weeks, but we got a a while to get there. So uh, it's been an awesome episode. Uh, awesome. I mean, I couldn't think of a better way to kick off the year with having Alan Bestwick on here and and talking. So that was awesome. And, uh, we have expanded to Apple podcasts and now believe now we're going to be on there. We should be on there this week with Spotify, Apple, and believe we're, we're getting everywhere. We're expanding this thing as much as we can. So, um, happy to have everybody on board and hope everyone, uh, has a great 2021. If you made it this far, we'd like to thank you for listening to the Drivers Meeting Podcast today, wherever you may be, and hope you stay tuned for upcoming episodes on Apple Podcasting, Spotify, the Believe Podcasting Network, and much more. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.